This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and in Los Angeles by Ray Robinson, and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 771 for release on Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. On WaveScan today, American Apex stations of the 1930s. We'll have more from the HFCC B23 conference in Australia, more of our conversation with Glenn Tapley and George Ross, and our DX report from Yukiko Tsuji in Japan. The era of high-fidelity radio stations in the United States was an experimental era that lasted for approximately 10 years, and it was the forerunner for the now widely accepted FM system. The high-fidelity experimental era was made up of two specific time periods and two widely different broadcasting bands. Let's go back to the beginning now with Ray Robinson. Thanks, Jeff. Back in the early 1930s, reception of radio broadcasting stations in the regular medium wave band, stretching from 540 to 1500 kHz as it did in those days, was subject to the problems of static and interference caused by long-distance coverage at night. In an attempt to correct these problems and to produce a better quality radio signal on the local scene, some radio stations began to experiment with a high-fidelity system, which included a wider bandwidth, the usage of higher frequencies, and the installation of a very high antenna system. In this way, it was hoped there'd be less atmospheric and man-made static, and the signal would not be affected so much by the variables associated with daytime and nighttime coverage. The two bands that were in use were the top end of the medium wave band, stretching from 1510 to 1600 kHz, and the high frequency channels, usually in the 9 meter and then the 7 meter ultra short wave bands, or what we would today recognize as part of VHF band 1. The two time periods were from 1931 to 1937, before commercially made receivers were available for this apex band and then 1937 to 1942, when commercially made radio receivers incorporating the high-frequency apex band became available. The very first station to install a transmitter in the high-frequency apex band was the CBS station W2XDV in New York City, which was inaugurated on February 6, 1932. This station emitted just 50 watts and was on the air experimentally and spasmodically with a relay from the medium wave station WABC, now identified as WCBS. The transmitter was installed in the CBS headquarters building in Madison Avenue, New York City. The very first station to commence a regular broadcasting service in the high-frequency apex band was W8XH in Buffalo, New York, with a relay from the well-known medium-wave station WBEN. 
This was in the year 1934. On November the 3rd in the following year, 1935, the aforementioned W2XDV, WABC, introduced a regular broadcasting service on the Apex channel of 31,600 kHz. In the following year again, 1936, station W9XAZ in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was the first Apex station to originate its own specific programming in this high-fidelity broadcast band. In 1937, radio receivers, which included the high-frequency Apex band, began to appear on the American market. One of the most notable of these receivers was manufactured by McMurdo Silver, and they issued innovative advertising to this effect. At this stage, the FCC allocated a total of 5 MHz of bandwidth for Apex broadcasting, and this section of the radio spectrum ran approximately from 41 to 44 MHz. The station lists of this era show that 22 Apex stations were on the air. In early 1939, the FCC issued a dozen additional licenses for Apex stations, although around this time they also advised radio broadcasting stations in the United States to consider the implementation of the alternative FM system, which was far superior to the Apex high-fidelity system. On June 15, 1940, the FCC issued licenses for three more Apex stations, the last licenses that were ever issued for radio broadcasting in the Apex high-frequency band. The last station to leave the Apex band and convert to the new standard FM band is believed to be station WBOE in Cleveland, Ohio, and this event occurred in February 1941. At the height of its popularity in late 1938 and early 39, there were somewhere around 50 or 60 radio stations nationwide on the air in the Apex high-fidelity high-frequency bands. During the 10-year period in which Apex broadcasting was in vogue, there was a total of a little more than 100 different stations on the air at some time during that era. Many of these stations were heard at a great distance, and radio magazines in Australia and New Zealand show that at least 30 of these stations were heard down under. These stations also issued QSL cards, and Dr. Adrian Peterson's Heritage Collection contains at least a dozen. However, at the same time as high-fidelity broadcasting was taking place in the high-frequency ultra-shortwave bands, a similar attempt at quality radio transmission was taking place at the top end of the medium-wave band, running from 1510 to 1600 kHz. Stations were allocated a wider bandwidth to accommodate higher audio frequencies, and this experimental era began in 1934, just two years subsequent to the launching of experimental high-fidelity broadcasting in the ultra-shortwave bands. The first four stations on the air in this section of the spectrum were, on 1530 kHz, W1XBS in Waterbury, Connecticut, and W9XBY in Kansas City, Missouri, and on 1550 kHz, W6XAI in Bakersfield, California, and W2XR in Long Island City, New York. However, the total number of broadcasting stations in this segment of the electronic spectrum was quite small, maybe just a dozen or so. These stations also issued many QSL cards to listeners. In fact, one station, W9XBY in Kansas City, Missouri, numbered their QSL cards, and we've seen one card with a serial number as high as 4,027. 
Now, at the same time as high-fidelity broadcasting was being developed during the 1930s in the twin areas of the electronic spectrum, at the end of the medium wave band and in the apex ultra-short wave bands, so also was experimental broadcasting using the FM frequency modulation system. At this stage, the FCC recommended the usage of FM for high-quality radio broadcasting. And thus, in 1940 and 1941, both of the earlier systems were abandoned. High fidelity in the upper end of the medium wave band and apex in the ultra short waves. However, if you look at the radio dial of receivers manufactured in the late 1930s, you may still find a radio receiver that tuned one of the apex bands, a symbol of a bygone era. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Ray. And Ray will be continuing that topic next week with a look at the development of apex broadcasting in other countries around the world as well as the quest for high-fidelity stereo broadcasting in the AM band since the 1930s. You're listening to WaveScan from Adventist World Radio. Last week we had the first part of a conversation that we recorded at the HFCC B23 conference in Australia with Glenn Tapley of shortwave station WEWN in Alabama, USA, and George Ross of Transworld Radio. Now, here's the second part of that conversation. I began by asking Glenn Tapley what he thought about the announcement from Continental Electronics that they had produced their first solid-state shortwave transmitter. Uh, would that make your life easier, uh, Glenn? You know, it's a good idea to, to, with the, the solid-state because it's modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're dealing with easier um, uh, engineering on the transmitters, uh, replacement, it can be much better. There's residual cost in everything, but I think that probably be lower, even though the initial cost of the transmitter is gonna, you know, gonna be uh, somewhat expensive. The residual uh, monies that you have to utilize to, to keep it, keep the maintenance up with them will be reduced and plentiful. So yes, it's a, it's a good idea, I'm glad it, Glad it's coming along. You're talking about tens of thousands of dollars for some of these uh, these tubes, uh, and some of these transmitters use three or four of them. So you know, at least. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the transmitters that we had one of our colleagues talk about yesterday at the GOE meeting had nine tubes that were this type. That wow. can be quite expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, huh. and and much less maintenance, of course, on a solid state transmitter. Oh yes, much less. Hmm. Well, we'll see what happens with that. Um, uh, maybe more information will be uh, forthcoming by the time of the next conference. This is the type of thing where you say, stay tuned, yeah. because you will have more information later. <laughs> and the, the next conference is uh, A24, uh, the A24 season in, in Kuala Lumpur, which we've been to uh, a number of times before, right? We have, yes, and it's another long trip, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, very interesting uh, place, Kuala Lumpur, and uh, good food, uh, nice people. So, um, yeah, looking forward to to getting there and, and, and having the next meeting. Another thing that somebody mentioned, uh, not, not just tubes for transmitters, but uh, other spare parts like, uh, uh, I didn't realize, capacitors are hard to come by. Uh, the larger capacitors, it turns out, as we've learned, are very hard to come by, and they can be as expensive as the tubes. Oh, yeah. hmm. Now, um, you've been doing um, 
quite a few DRM transmissions from Guam, right? We continue to do DRM and are looking forward to doing more. In the Asia region that we broadcast to, it is the most active for DRM broadcasting and listening. And I would, I would like to say, if I could, India and Japan, as you probably have with many of your listeners here, are really the key areas where we see more of our DRM response coming from. Mm-hmm. And what kind of receivers are they using? Um, ICOM receivers, I think, are pretty popular in Japan. Gospel has four different models that are out now that can be purchased. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Go down through some of them. Starwaves has two different types of receivers that are out. Looking at a third receiver out now. I'm trying to remember the name of the one that's produced right right now from India, which is also used, obviously, quite a bit there. And there are a couple other receiver manufacturers looking right now to get some receivers into the Indian market. Mm-hmm. Along with uh, the Kiwi SDRs, which are very popular for pulling in the DRM signals. Yeah, I've used that myself. It's, uh, I mean, if you don't have a DRM receiver, that's a, <laughs> right. a good way to, to get them. You just go onto your onto your computer and, uh, and and connect to one of these uh, many, there's many of them, right? Oh, yes, there are all around the world, and you can get online and find where they are and the access to be able to use them. Yeah. You know, there is a um, DRM listener we have regular. I think it's really something from Guam. We have a regular listener from Italy. Hmm. That's a pretty good distance <laughs> for listening to a broadcast. Wow, yeah. This time we had the, the Chinese delegation back with us. They've been gone since the uh, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. They haven't been able to travel to HSCC conferences, and so it was uh, uh, good to see them uh, back with us again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and I had the opportunity with Calvin uh, Carter with Continental to speak with uh, one of the representatives yesterday, and we had a good conversation, and he was... Uh, interested in in some new technologies and what was uh, coming up Um, but it's good to be able to have them here to share the information that uh, that we have been sharing over the last few conferences that they haven't been here so it's probably a little bit of a catch-up for them but yeah so glad to have our colleagues from china here yeah and it's important because they are probably the the largest user of the of the shortwave bands um they, they also have a little bit of information about the, uh, uh, there's a company that produces some of these big tubes in, in China as well, right? That is correct. Um, of course, it remains to be seen what the quality of the Chinese tubes is compared to those from uh, uh, other places. But anyway, it's an interesting uh, development or opportunity, we'll see. They may make a presentation at the next conference, they said. It would be interesting to see if they really would have a production for both tubes and capacitors on the global market. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like you really have to get into a uh, type of an agreement with them to get things produced. But that would really be something. Mm-hmm. That could put them right on top of the list as a producer. So what are the, um, uh, what, what are the issues of main concern right now? In uh, at your guys' stations, uh, in terms of shortwave broadcasting, uh, how do you see the the, the next um, couple of years developing? Well, um, we've um, 
looked at our frequencies and we have some issues maintenance uh, at EWT, uh, WEWN and um, so we're working those out slowly but surely the uh, solid state transmitter sounds like um, it'll be a, a good opportunity for us because it's an initial investment but again the operating costs and the availability of the, the equipment the um, to keep them operating as they should, uh, you know, and the main thing really is just the fact that the equipment will be there and from a company here in the United States that we can hopefully count on to, to provide that. So that, that, that would, would help what we're doing. So, but yeah, we, we've got plans to keep going. There's, there's, there's some areas that are very important to us you know, that we can't get to with our television and, and our um, satellite um, streaming. It's just not available. There's places there's no broadband and very little electricity in some and some that are still closed societies that, that we want to get to and, and allow them to, to hear the message that EWTN and WEWN Shortwave has to offer. One of the things we've noted at, at WRMI uh, and I'm sure you have too, George, is uh, um, the higher frequencies are doing better these days, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. The solar propagation right now is almost to the peak of the sunspot cycle. So it's a delight with where we can go with higher frequencies, especially at this time. Yeah. We, have, we use uh, 15770 kilohertz as one of ours, and it's on 24 hours a day. And amazingly... Even at nighttime, it's getting in uh, in various places. <laughs> so, well, yeah, yeah, I can add to that. Uh, we were looking to expand our uh, 12050, and uh, I was able to add some evening hours with a higher frequency to reach the target where before we were at 5 meg. And uh, so it's, it's going to help us do that while these sunspot numbers are so high. Uh, so, and, and again, going back to some of the maintenance issues, uh, the lower frequency, we can't use it right now. So we're working on that to get that back again before it, sunspot numbers start to drop and we'll have to have it. So, but, but a good thing we can, we can use the higher frequency in the evening hours to, to, to get there uh, presently. And we have a few more years, though, of, uh, of the cycle going up, right? <laughs> We've got a couple more years anyway, but then again, it goes up a lot quicker than it comes down. So on the back side of things, you do have more time to put things in place when you do have to get to the lower meter bands to uh, cover what your listening areas are. And, you know, since we're here at the frequency coordination meetings, for me, the greatest um, part of my work is TWR broadcasts in 310 languages. So consequently, many of them are on shortwave. And as we continue to look at increasing to areas we haven't broadcast to, that takes in a lot of the dynamics of where we can reach with different meter bands. So at one of our sites, we've now gone to 17 megahertz to broadcast because that can go even further to the locations we're looking at. So when it, when it comes to scheduling new frequencies and new air times, that's what we're here for. Great. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Um... Uh, George and Glenn for being with us on uh, Wavescan today, and I guess we'll uh, we'll see you uh, in, in Kuala Lumpur maybe in January. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thank Glenn. You, I appreciate you. Man. Uh -huh. We were talking there with George Ross of Transworld Radio and Glenn Tapley of WEWN in Birmingham, Alabama. 
at the HFCC B23 Coordination Conference in Queensland, Australia. Right now, let's go to Japan. Here's Yukiko Tsuji in Tokyo. Hello and welcome to the DX Report of the Month from Japan Showtube Club, aided by Toshi Otake, and I'm Yukiko Tsuji. We have several DX reports from our club members this week. Radio Filipinas from Philippines was heard on 9925 kHz on November 4th from 1850 to 1915 UTC in Filipino. SIO rating was 353. Press statement by Philippine President Marcos and Japanese Prime Minister Kishida was broadcast. The parallel frequencies 12120 kHz was SIO rating 252 and 15190 kHz was also 252. BBC World Service via Tinan, Philippines was received on 9580 kilohertz on November 6th from the sign on at the 2200 to the sign off at the 2300 UTC in English. SIO rating was 454. The programs heard were World News followed by Newsroom at 2206, News at 2230, and World Business Report at 2232. Akashvani from Bengaluru, India was heard on 15400 kilohertz on November 11th, from 1135 to the sign off at 1200 UTC in Chinese. SIO rating was 453. Talk program and music were on the air. Partially English announcement was heard. ID was given at 1150. VOA DIWA radio via Kuwait was received on 9355 kilohertz on November 2nd. From 1550 to 1630 UTC in Persian. SIO rating was 454. Talk program and local music were aired. ID was given at 1555. NHK World Radio Japan via Davaya UAE was heard on 12095 kHz on November 10th from 1600 to 1630 UTC in Russian. SIO rating was a 252. It started with opening music Sakura Sakura and ID, followed by news. Talk program by male and female announcers was broadcast at 1610. Follow the Bible Ministries via Ascension was heard on 12010 kHz on November 5th from the sign on at 1900 to the sign off at 1928 UTC in English. SIO rating was 252. Bible study was aired. ID was given at 1927. Radio Malti via Greenville, USA was heard on 11930 kHz on November 1st from 2129 to 2200 UTC in Spanish. SIO rating was 242. Talk program and interview were on the air. ID was given at 2130 and 2159. WEWN from Vandiver, USA was received on 12050 kHz on November 4th from 2015 to 2055 UTC in Spanish. SIO rating was 353. Talk and music program was aired. ID and jingle were given at 2027. 
Radio Nacional da Amazonia from Brasilia, Brazil, was heard on 11780 kilohertz on November 8th, from 2240 to 2259 UTC in Portuguese. SIO rating was 252, then down to 222. Talk program by male and female announcers was broadcast. ID was given at 2250. There was severe interference from a Chinese station at 2257. Finally, Japan Shotel Club will issue the QSL cards for the correct reports on our segment of WaveScan program. We are issuing QSL card by email to the report sent by email. Our address for your email report is jswcqsl.live.jp. I repeat, jswcqsl.live.jp. live.jp We continue to issue the printed QSL card by the same system as before. Your report should be addressed to JSWC PO Box 44 Kamakura which is K A M A K U R A Postal Code 248-8691 Japan 1 ILC or 2 US dollars for return postage will be appreciated. For this edition of DX Report, we would like to thank Mr. Yoshiaki Hayashi, Mr. Iwao Nagatani, Mr. Chiaki Shimada, and Mr. Kazuaki Oikawa for sharing the information with us. Thank you for listening, and please join us for our next edition of DX Report of Japan Shotep Club. Thank you, Kiko. And with the notes of Waltzing Matilda, we come to the end of another edition of WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson and in Los Angeles by Ray Robinson. Next week on WaveScan, Apex Stations Part 2, Apex Around the World. And we'll have more from the High Frequency Coordination Conference that took place recently in Australia. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone.
This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 